Grab a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 12. There are accounts of Christmas in the New Testament. One account is of the poor visitors showing up in Bethlehem to find a child wrapped in swaddling clothes. And Luke tells us that this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed in another account, the infant Jesus is threatened by Herod the Great, and he's taken to Egypt by his parents. And in Matthew 2.16, we read, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And this third story of Christmas in the New Testament is kind of a transformation of that second story of Herod after the boys under two years old. A pregnant woman in Revelation 12 is threatened by a dragon who intends to devour her child. Let's look at Revelation 12. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain, and she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept away a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. Wherever we look at the mystery of Christmas and the incarnation of Jesus, it's always linked to danger and this conflict between good and evil. We often, in our customs and in our traditions, have made Christmas uh, nice and cozy, and, and that it is. We often focus on the baby, but we're looking at this cosmic event that happened beyond the stars and beyond the creation of God working a redemption story in the lives of people who are far from him. And that cosmic story always involves conflict. There is a conflict between good and and evil, and we live in a world where there is conflict between good and evil, and it's not just the evil of others, but if we're honest, isn't there a conflict even within ourselves? We can relate to the Apostle Paul who says, the good that I want to do, I don't do, and the bad things I don't want to do, I do. And so we understand there's a conflict, and Christmas is really a story about a cosmic conflict. It's not just a conflict we have within ourselves, but it's a, it's a spiritual battle. It's a battle that is beyond the stars, and it's beyond the visible world. It even goes to the invisible realm. And so Revelation 12, John opens the curtains for us and says, you know why we're struggling on planet Earth? Well, here's why. Here's what's happening behind the scenes. And this great sign appeared. A sign was given to evoke wonder. A sign was given to evoke awe. And so what do we see? This first sign is a woman with the sun and the moon under her feet. It's both night and day in this sign. It's both somehow for the sun and the moon and the stars. Um, they're all visible at once. And John's vision is this, is this huge panorama across the sky. And so God's people have this light and they have this sun and the moon. And there's this prophetic imagery from the Old Testament. The 12 stars symbolize the fact that the glory of humanity was attempt, uh, meant to adorn the bride of Christ. One uh, 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 commentator said this, The sun corresponds to divine love, and this all-essential source of blessedness appears to the angels in heaven as a sun immeasurably surpassing ours in splendor. 
And while its holy glow warms, it also blesses them. Psalm 84.11 says this, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk is blameless. The sun is the center of our solar system. And so this divine love is the center of the spiritual system. The sun warms all of nature. And so divine love warms all of heaven. And so who is this woman? It's a symbol of something. We see this sun. We see this moon. We, need the, we see these stars. So who is this woman? This, this woman symbolizes the nation of Israel. And so there's this tie with the Old Testament. As there's tie as Christmas comes, we have to go back in history a little bit to make sense of really what it means that Jesus, the eternal Logos, took on flesh and became one of us. In Genesis 37, verses 9 to 11, this is Joseph, who's having dreams. Remember, Joseph was his father's favorite. He had dreams about his family. And he said, this is the dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, I had another dream. At this time, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So the sun and the moon refer to Jacob and Rachel, Joseph's parents, and the stars in his crown are the 12 sons of Jacob. So we know the sign that God has given to John is that this woman is Israel. It's that old covenant people of God. And the, uh, the, the woman is giving birth to a son. And so this cosmic Christmas is beyond the stars, is that God is working in history for his people. What does he do? He prepares a people. He prepares the nation of Israel. Israel's role is one of preparation. What was Israel to do? Israel was to bring forth the Messiah. That's why they're a physical people in a physical place. And they're a physical nation to bring forth a physical person. And so that's what they are doing. And so John in Revelation 12 says, here's what's happening. Is that this woman, this nation of Israel, this this, uh, symbol of God's covenant people in the Old Testament, was bringing forth a, a child. And we know that child is Jesus. Folks in the Old Testament were looking for this light. I want you to go back to the Old Testament for a minute and think about where you are in this story of redemption. You know nothing of Jesus. You know nothing of forgiveness of sins that comes through Jesus. You know nothing of the hope of Emmanuel, God with us. You're just looking for something. You're looking for a light. You're looking for a future thing to happen. And so Isaiah chapter 60 says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the people. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Isaiah is telling these people that you live in where? This thick darkness over the land. It's the evil and it's the ignorance of the people who are not following God's ways. Isaiah 60 verse 20 says, Your sun will never set again and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of sorrow will end. You are in this place. In the Old Testament nation of Israel, they were uh, enslaved in Egypt and they were delivered and they were in the promised land, but they were disobedient and then they were taken into exile and then they, they came back to their land and then the Romans conquered the land. And so this history of the Old Testament Israel was one of seemingly constant captivity, constantly yearning and longing for something. Do you ever feel that way in your life? 
Like you're in a place, you're, you're in this place and it can seem dark and gloomy and you're longing and you're yearning just for things to, to get better. You're just learning, yearning for this light to happen, for this thing to happen. And that's where the nation of Israel was. That's where these people were because they didn't have the Messiah. They didn't have the hope of Jesus. But the Lord kept promising them a, a light is coming. There's a light that's going to come. There's a light that's going to shine upon you. This is your hope. And the people of Israel, as often we do, say, when? (laughs) When is this going to happen? It seems so dark, and it seems like there's no end to this. It seems like the struggle will never end. It seems like this despair and this gloom that I'm in and this, this, this season that I'm in is never going to end. And yet I have these promises of God that it's going to happen at some point in the Old Testament. The community of the people is often called the bride of God. The church is the bride of Christ. But in the Old Testament, Israel was God's bride. Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The book of Hosea was written because of Israel's unfaithfulness to their one true God, and they were uh, involved in idolatry. And so God compared that to unfaithfulness. He said, I will betroth you forever. I will betroth you in righteousness, in justice, in love, and compassion. And so the nation of Israel was known as God's bride. He was their husband. God always is seeking relationship with his people. We are the bride of Christ as the church. What we're in relationship with Jesus. The Old Testament Israel was in relationship with God as his, as the husband. And they were the bride. And so we see this woman is the what? It's the bride of God from the Old Testament. They were chosen in preparation for the deliverance of the Messiah. God says, out of all the peoples of the earth, Israel, I want you. I haven't chose you because you were smart and wealthy and powerful and the best. I just chose you because of my mercy but I'm choosing you and I'm choosing you to bring forth this Messiah. And so when they have the promise until it is fulfilled, it is thousands of years. God, what? He chooses Abraham, who is the father, the the forefather of all those who by faith in Jesus will come to him. And it's been thousands of years and it's this in-between time. Isn't that where we feel stuck? God says, I'm going to do this. And a year passes. And two years pass, and three years pass, and we say, Lord, when are you going to do this? Have you forgotten about me? Have you forgotten about your promises? Now multiply that by thousands of years when God called Abraham. And over the years and over the years, his people can become very frustrated. We say, Lord, when is this going to happen? Have you forgotten where we are in this place? And though this woman gives birth and John testifies that this woman, Israel, brings forth a male child and there he is. The light that was promised, the deliverance that was promised. There is a theme in scripture that we can't misunderstand as we come to this, as we come to Christmas time. And the theme is that of exile. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, he wanted a relationship with them. And he says, you have relationship with me. You're free to eat of all the trees except the one tree. And what do they do? They eat from the one tree. And what happens to them is they are exiled from the garden. They are, they are banished from the garden. They, were, they are pushed out of the garden. And so now they live out of harmony with God and his plans for their life. What happens with the nation of Israel? Abraham is the father. He has sons. And the nation of Israel, there is a, a famine. They go to Israel 
and or go to Egypt because that's where Joseph is. And what happens while they're there? There were Pharaohs that rose that didn't know Joseph and didn't know uh, all that God had done through him. And they were enslaved in Egypt. What, where are they? They're in exile. They go out of Egypt. And where do they end up? It was an 11-day trip to the promised land, but because of their disobedience, they ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And so they're in this wilderness exile for what? For 40 years. They finally crossed the Jordan River and they're in the promised land. And God said to them, if you obey, you can stay. They disobeyed and away they went. First Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and then the Babylonians came and conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, and they went into what? Exile, into wilderness. They eventually came back, and we see now in Revelation 12, this woman gives birth to a son, it gives birth to this boy, and there's a dragon there. Why? All of these things are predicated on what? It's a spiritual battle. It's a conflict that when we either choose our way or God's way, but when we choose our way, it always ends up in wilderness. It always ends up in exile. We are separated from God because of us, not because of God. Someone asked, said one time, if you feel far away from God, it's not that God moved, it's that we did. So we put ourselves into these exiles. We put ourselves into these wilderness places. And when the church was birthed and the church was born, it was in a great time of persecution. In fact, in verse 14 of Revelation 12, the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her where? In the wilderness. The nation of Israel, when it started, was what? In exile, in wilderness. And now the church, when it is birthed, it is in exile, it is in wilderness as this Roman Empire starts to persecute and try to take over. And what happens to us in our lives? We end up in wilderness. We end up in exile. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our not wanting to submit to God and to His ways, that is where we end up. And so the people were promised that when they come back to this place, when they go into exile and they come back, that there will be a promise of restoration. And so in Ezra 1, we see that the people are coming back. However, they are very disappointed when they come back. In fact, those, when the temple was rebuilt, those who had seen the former temple wept because they said, this one is, a, is nothing like the original. Those who knew the glory of Israel, they they were wept and they were mourning because they knew that this restoration was not what it once was. And so really Israel, it was only partially restored when it came out of exile in both Assyria and in Babylon. And so for hundreds of years then, the people were still in this partial exile. They They returned to the land, but it wasn't like it used to be. We've been there. When we disobey the Lord and we go far away and we come back, it's just different, isn't it? Yes, we could be forgiven. Yes, we know we're loved, but we still know everything we've done. We still know all that stuff that's in there. And our our relationships are changed. We ourselves are changed. When we go into the wilderness and the exile of sin and rebellion and disobedience, just something changes and it's never quite like it was before. We can be forgiven of all kinds of things, but the relationship is just not like it was before. And that's where the people of Israel were. They went into exile and they came back, but it was only this partial restoration because it just wasn't like it was before. And so for hundreds of years... After the Old Testament closes, the prophets are done. God sent the prophets to tell the people, warn the people, you need to obey or you're gonna, you can't stay. 
And after the prophets were done, there was silence. So here are the people living in a partial restoration, a partial exile. Things weren't like they used to be. And there's no word from the Lord. There's nothing coming from the Lord. There is turmoil and there's conflict. And there's all kinds of things happening within the nation of Israel. And other nations coming in and the Romans come in. And so the people are sitting there and they would say, why God? Why didn't you fully restore your kingdom? Why didn't you fully restore us? And so that's kind of where we are in our, even in our Christian experience. Yes, we're forgiven, but we're still living in this place where things aren't what they're going to be. This world is still cursed. This world is still sinful. This world is still broken. And one day it's going to be changed, but we're still living in this place. And so even though my, my spirit can be renewed, even though my, I can be forgiven, I, it's still a partial restoration. Why? Because I still have this body of flesh. And I'm still dealing with the flesh. And so it's a struggle. That's Romans 6, 7, and 8, where Paul talks about that struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And so it's a partial restoration in our lives when our spirits are restored and renewed and regenerated. But we're still living with this body who still loves the same old stuff. (laughs) When you became a believer, you still had similar desires and similar struggles and similar temptations. I know when people become believers, they're very disheartened because they give their life to Jesus. And all of a sudden they run into those old temptations and those old struggles and they say, what happened? Am I really forgiven? Am I really a believer? That's where the nation of Israel was. They had the promise. They were partially restored. And so we are partially restored. Our spirits are forgiven. Our spirits are forgiven. But our bodies have not been restored. This earth hasn't been restored. And so we are in this partial restoration in our own lives. And so Israel was in this place of silence for 400 years. No word from the prophets. No word from the Lord. In fact, we sing that Christmas song. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall ransom captive Israel. That's the hope. We live in that place of exile. And for us as believers, it can be a lonely exile here on planet Earth. We want to be with the Lord. We want all of this stuff to be over, but we're still here. And it can be, very, it can be a, a harsh struggle. I'm convinced Christmas is a harsh holiday when you think about what is happening in, uh, beyond what we can see. Behind the curtain, when it's uh, picked up beyond the stars, there's this cosmic struggle that's going on that hasn't ended. We are still in part, a part of that. And so what happens is the New Testament break, picks up the story where the Old Testament leaves off. So God had promised restoration of his people, but it was only a partial restoration, and they're struggling. And so what happens is the New Testament picks up. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And so what happens in Matthew chapter 1 is that it isn't uh, part two of the story. It's not the great Christmas story. In fact, in Matthew chapter one, it's often where we get bogged down because it starts with a genealogy. I don't, um, I'm not judging, but how many of you just flip past Matthew chapter one? (laughs) You're like, oh, brother. Matthew, listen, Matthew chapter one is the continuation of the story. 
Remember, God always had a people for himself. In the Old Testament, it was Israel. In the New Testament, it is now the church. And so this genealogy shows the continuation of the Old Testament through the New Testament. In fact, in the book of Haggai, it says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. And listen, what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with the glory, says the Lord Almighty. You know what the desire of nations is? Jesus. Hark the herald angels sing. We sing that. Come, desire of nations, come and fix in us thy humble home. It's Jesus. John 1.14 on your note says, The word became flesh. It made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the nation of Israel was in this lonely exile. They were partially restored. They were looking for this full restoration. And what does God do? God sends his son. And he says, now you have full restoration of your relationship with me. And when John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, that word for dwelling is tabernacled. Jesus tabernacled among us. He, he, uh, it means to reside. It's a symbol of protection. It's a symbol of community. It's a, it means to tent or to camp. And so here's what Jesus did. He pitched his tent among us. It's a continuation of the Old Testament. Remember the Old Testament? Though they were in lonely exile and this temple was nothing like the old temple. It was not meant to be because a better temple was coming and that was the temple of Jesus, God in the flesh. Far greater fulfillment than anything that could have been restored to the temple. Now we are the temple and the Holy Spirit lives in us. And so Jesus, the Bible says, came and tabernacled with us. And so Zechariah says this about his son, John the Baptist. He says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. See what Zechariah says? Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist. And he wasn't able to speak, but the Lord gave him his voice back. And then he prophesied. And this is what he said. This, John the Baptist, and also the events surrounding the birth of Jesus... They were about six months apart, cousins. And so uh, Zechariah says this about John the Baptist. God has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies. Enable us to serve him without fear. Here's what Zechariah says. My part with John the Baptist, Jesus coming in that first Christmas, was the fulfillment of the Old Testament of God's promise to uh, once again come and be with his people and deliver them from his enemies. What is the enemy that we have to face? The number one enemy, or or some of our enemies that we face, are the adversary, Satan. He's the great dragon in Revelation 12. We're going to look at him next week. We have that enemy. We have the world, all those who are acting contrary to the kingdom of God. And you know what other enemy we have to face? The person we see in the mirror every day. 
because of the struggle with the flesh. And it's those enemies that Jesus came to free us from, the enemies of Satan and sin and self. That is why Zechariah could say this is a continuation of the Old Testament. This is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The exile is a time of darkness, despair, and longing. We are not home yet. We desire to go home. It's a time of testing, and it's a time of trial, but there's also this hope of return. And so the beginning of the Gospels, the exile ends because of our estrangement from God, because of our sin. Look at Matthew 1.17. There were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Do you see what Matthew just did? He said the continuing story of the Old Testament from Abraham, who is the root and the father of the nation of Israel, to David, who is the king, who God said will always have someone sit on the throne, to what? The exile and the exile to the Messiah. That's the story of redemption. And that's the story of redemption in us as well. We are in exile, and then we are brought back because of the Messiah. Now, Matthew makes a lot of the numbers and a lot of the generations. There, there are six sevens of generations, and Jesus is the beginning of the seventh seven. So what does it mean? Numbers are important in the Bible, and seven is significant because as God tells us in Genesis, what did he do? He created for six days, and what did he do on the seventh day? He rested. Now, he didn't quit. He just rested from his creative activity. He didn't quit because if he quit totally, the universe would have blown apart. But God's still maintaining and God's still working. So all he did was he rested from his creative order. The Sabbath day was one day in seven was a day of rest. And in the Mosaic law, every seven years, the farmers were to let the land lie fallow. You weren't supposed to dig it up and plant it. Why? Because it would replenish its nutrients. And so the seventh year represented rest. The seventh day was God resting. The seventh day was a Sabbath rest. The seventh year was a Sabbath rest. And in Leviticus 25, the seventh period of seven years... Every 49 years, the 50th year was a year of jubilee. Slaves were free, debts were forgiven, and the land and all the people were have rest. Why? Because of the seventh seven, the Sabbaths of Sabbath. It was a foretaste of what God was going to give us in Jesus. So here's what Matthew's telling us. Matthew says, this nation, this woman, this, this people gave birth to the Messiah. And what's he going to do? He is the one who has come to help us in our exile, help us in this loneliness that we, that we live in. Matthew is telling us that this rest will come from Jesus. Jesus is our rest. Jesus broke into time and space to accomplish our salvation for us, what we could not do for ourselves. In fact, the writer of Hebrews picks that up in Hebrews chapter 4 and says this, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard had no value because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now, we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said. Verses 9 to 11, it's on your notes. There remains then a Sabbath rest, for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from us. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. What does that have to do with exile? The people were looking for rest. When they were in Egypt, enslaved, what were they looking for? The promised land where they could what? Find rest. 
when they were in the promised land. They wanted to rest there, but they couldn't rest there because of their disobedience. And so they were taken into captivity. And what did they want in captivity? They wanted to be restored from exile. Why? For, for rest. And once they were restored, it wasn't a, it wasn't a full restoration. It was a partial, partial restoration. And so they were what? God's people were looking for rest in this lonely exile. You know what rest is? God, when he rested, he just did something different. He, he gave up, he stopped his creative activity. Rest is just that place in our lives where we can go. I want you to do that. Breathe in. And just go. Isn't that what we're looking for? In this exile that we find ourselves in, in this world where we find ourselves, where there's struggle, where there's this conflict, where there's this cosmic thing. Isn't that what we're looking for? We're just looking for that moment we can just... <sighs> Christmas is a very busy time, and you maybe have been out shopping and doing all kinds of things, and what's the first thing you do when you get home? <sighs> You're at work, stressful day at work, traffic is terrible, there's been accidents, all kinds of things, and you, as soon as you get home, what do you do? That's what we're looking for. Because the, uh, Peter tells us in the epistle of Peter that we, we are exiles and we are foreigners in this land. So we as believers, we're still in exile and we are still wandering in this place. And really all we're looking for is that... And you know where that comes from? Jesus. And that rest is available to us today. How is it? It's by faith. Because the writer of Hebrews says that the folks in the Old Testament, they didn't have that rest because they didn't combine it with faith. I want to give you a couple ways to have rest in exile. Peter tells us that we are exiles, we are foreigners, we are strangers, we are sojourners, we are walking through this place. Someone said, because we're sojourners, we need to pack lightly, <laughs> right? We're walking through this world, and we want to be encumbered by the things of the world, but this world isn't our ultimate home, but we're here in the meantime. So we are longing for this something better. We're longing, right, for our heavenly home. But while we're here, we are still very much in exile. We're not spiritually in exile anymore because Jesus came to bridge that gap between God and us so we can have that spiritual connection. But we're just still physically in exile even as we wander through this place. So how in our lives do we have that thing where we can have rest? The first way is this. We can have rest... From trying to prove yourself. We have rest from trying to prove ourselves. In Jesus, you can stop trying to prove yourself because you know it doesn't really matter in the end whether you are a failure or a king. All you need is God's grace. And you can have it in spite of your failures. We have rest in spite of ourselves. We can have rest in our, and quit trying to prove ourselves. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. The writer of Hebrews says, when we rest in God, verse 10, we also rest from our works. Think about how much of our life is trying to prove ourselves. Because we live in this place of exile, where we are still dealing with sinful people and our sinful selves, we spend our lives trying to prove ourselves that we are worthwhile, that we are valuable, 
that we are liked, that we are smart, that we are athletic, that we are intelligent, that we are the best employee, that we are the best uh, mom or dad, that we're the best family. All of our lives, we tend to want to prove ourselves. I have to get the best education so I can get the best job. On and on it goes. And while we are in exile, that is exhausting. It's just exhausting. And what they're, at the end of this exile that Jesus has brought to us, what it says is, what you do is after you know him, you want to live your life to please him, but you don't have to clean up your act first in order to know him. We don't have to get our life all together and then say, Jesus, I got everything in order, and now I want to come to you. What do we do? We say, Lord, I am a mess. I'm coming to you. I'm your problem now. You clean me up. And that's what we do. But our entire lives. And so in this exile, sometimes we are frustrated and sometimes we are lonely and sometimes we are just longing because why? We never stop just to rest. Quit trying to prove ourselves. Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, it's all people trying to prove themselves. This was a hilarious story a couple weeks ago. A young lady was out in the, in the wilderness, Instagramming herself because she's out in the wilderness. And she has all these followers about, oh, that's so awesome. You're out while hiking in the wilderness. But her sister also had a camera. And her sister took a picture of her sister in their backyard. She wasn't in the wilderness. It was the backyard. Why? She's trying to prove, I got to get the light just right. I got to get this because I want th- people to think that I'm out hiking out in the wilderness. Why? She's trying to prove herself. And we don't necessarily live for Facebook likes and Instagram likes and, and those, but we live for the approval of others. We want people to think well of us and we want them to like us and they want us. And so what do we do? We, we, we strive and, and we are not authentically us. We all do that, but you know, there are folks who act different ways with different people. We see that all the time. Why? Because we're trying to prove ourselves. And here's the rest that Jesus gives us in our exile is that you don't have to prove yourself. In Jesus, you are approved of. In Jesus, you have everything you need. And so quit trying to prove yourself. Quit trying to prove yourself ultimately to God. Quit trying to prove yourself to God that you are worthwhile and that you... Listen, in Jesus, you are accepted, period. You are. You are loved. You are valuable just because you're created in God's image. There's no more improvement that we need to try to make with God. And yet in this exile, we will try to continually try to just prove ourselves. If something goes wrong, what do we say? What do we think? I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make it better. I'm going to do it better the next time. So we have rest in our exile now because of Emmanuel, God with us, who in Jesus, in this restoration that we are part of now, we can have restoration. But the second way is this. We have rest from the troubles and evils of this world. We have rest from the troubles and the evils of this world. We feel like we have to control history. We have to make everything go right. Listen, that's not only exhausting, it is impossible. There's very little we can control. There's very little that we can uh, uh, control in, in other people, in ourselves... And what we want to do is we want to control history. We want, we want to just, we just want everybody to do and be and act certain ways. But it's exhausting. And here's what Christmas tells us. 
that despite appearances to the contrary, God is in control of history. Where were the Israelites? 400 years, no word from the Lord. They were in lonely exile. They thought that everything, uh, there was no hope. There was all the promises God had made were not coming true. And then we see in the beginning of the Gospels that God, what, keeps his word. Mary said to Elizabeth, Elizabeth, when she visited Elizabeth, uh, Mary said this, He, that's God, has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. So when Mary goes to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is with child, and Mary is with child by the Holy Spirit, and what does Mary say? Mary says, listen, we are part of this grand scheme of God's redemption. We are part of this grand history of God's redemption. And in these babies, specifically the Jesus, that God has remembered to be merciful. You know what Christmas says? God remembers. God doesn't forget. You probably tried to make your Christmas list and hope you didn't forget anyone. Christmas morning, you'd be like, ah, I forgot someone. But God doesn't forget. He remembers. And that's what Mary says. So what, so what Mary says is this, is that we can, have, we can have rest from troubles and evils of this world. Now listen, when God gave up his his uh, rested. Remember, he gave up his creative activity, but he still was alive and still doing things. And so when we have rest from the troubles and the evils of this world, it doesn't mean that the troubles and evils of this world are going to go away or that we can only have rest when those troubles and evils of the world go away, because we will never have rest if we are waiting for the troubles and the evils of the world to go away. They will not go away. We are living in a broken, sinful, fallen world. That's where the nation of Israel was. And someday God will put everything right. And so some of our inward rest comes when the Spirit reminds us this is not our ultimate rest. Sometimes the rest that we have in our exile here until we get to our heavenly home, the Spirit has to remind us this is not our ultimate rest. The problem is we want to make earth heaven and it isn't. It just isn't. And we are, we are disappointed and we are frustrated because we want it to be a certain way because we are trying to control history and trying to control people. Listen, history has a long arc. We are just a blip on the radar of history. And we tend to think that it all centers around me. How long did the Israelites wait for Jesus? You know, in Genesis chapter 3, we looked at that verse last week. The promise that the one born of the woman would crush the serpent's head. He's going to strike it all the way back to Genesis. How long did it take? Thousands and thousands and thousands of years. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage against your soul. Peter tells us that while we're in exile, my battle is really against those sinful desires. We are not exiled from God spiritually, but we are still not at home with him. We are passing through. And listen, we have this powerful hope. You need to write this down and remember it. Our hope for the future is not optimism, It is certain. There's a difference between optimism and certainty. Our hope for the future is not optimism. What is it? It is is certain. It is certain that at the end of all all time, everything will be well. It's not well now, but we we have a certainty. Why? Because God keeps his promises. And Christmas is the fact that God keeps his promise. It gives us strength. 
and peace when dealing with the trials and the tragedies of the present, even though the glory of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Listen, Christmas is not once upon a time a story happened that shows us how we should live better lives. The, the gospel is not advice, and when we sometimes treat it as advice. Do this, and don't do this, and here's a better way to be a successful parent, and here's a, here's a way to find joy. And, and much of what we treat the gospel is that, it, it, that it's advice. But the gospel is not advice, it is good news. And what is news? News is something that has happened. And the good news is... Jesus came and he died on the cross in our place to accomplish for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. It is news because it's already happened for you. So why are you striving to make it happen for yourself? That's what the gospel is. The gospel is that I surrender and I, I, I trust Jesus by faith to do for me what I cannot do for myself. And that means I don't have to try to prove myself to God, and I, I don't have to. The, the, I have rest from the troubles and the evils of the world because because I am God's. I'm I'm his, I'm his child. I'm in His hands, and no matter what happens, I'm still His. If I walk out and get hit by a metro van, you won't get hit by a metro van. Those things drive too slow. You can get out of the way. But I, I'm God's. Like, there's nothing that can happen to me in this life that I, that I need to fear because I know whose I am. Why? Because it's certain. It's not optimism. Optimism is, oh, I hope I get a new iPhone 11 for Christmas, right? That's optimism. I, I hope I get this. Certainty is, there's an iPhone 11 under the tree, and it's mine. That's certainty. We need to live our lives with more certainty than optimism. Optimism is just wishful thinking. Oh, I hope it all turns out. We wring our hands while we're in exile. Oh, I hope it's okay. No, listen, it is certain. Why? Because God said it's going to happen and it'll happen. The people were in exile for years. They thought they never would return, but they returned. There, there was no word from the Lord for, for 400 years. And all of a sudden, breaks into the scene, there's a baby that has been born. And let me tell you how he fits into the grand scheme of redemption. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 says this. An angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Now listen. These people who were hearing this news were living under the oppressive Roman Empire. They, they had limited freedoms. Times are very different. And yet the angel comes to them and says, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And what is the good news? Here's what's happened. I'm already telling you what has happened. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So the angels are saying, see, your exile is ended in Jesus. You're, you can find rest now in Jesus. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Jesus broke into the world to save us. Christ the Savior is born. And we have freedom from our exile. You see, Christmas is more than all the stuff. I love Christmas. It's like, it's like a great time of year. But we have to remember there's still this cosmic thing that's going on. It is more than just the surface stuff. It is, it is this grand scheme of redemption. It's this grand scheme of conflict. It's this grand scheme of God ultimately winning the victory because of Jesus. But in the moment, we are in that place where it's now and it's not yet. 
Maybe you were a teenager getting your driver's license and your mom or dad said to you, I want to buy you a new car. Well, you know, it wasn't new. It was, it was a used car, but it's new to you. So what happens when you first get that word and before you get the car? Every time you hear a car, what do you do? You run to the window. Is that my car? And like, oh, no. Well, because we're living in this expectation and we, we have the word, but it hasn't come through true yet. And that's where we find ourselves today. We have the word that, yes, Jesus, he's got, everything's going to be set straight. He's coming back again. This whole world's going to be renovated and restored. Our bodies are going to be renewed. If we're dead, we're going to be resurrected. We all that stuff. But Lord, I'm I'm right. I'm in the right now. So what do we do? We rest in Jesus. The exile that we are in, this place of those wandering in this wilderness experience that we are in, we find rest in Jesus. And it's not just optimism. It is certainty. God always keeps his word. If you were promised a car and you never got the car, how disappointed are you still? <laughs> You're like, oh man. Listen, that's not God. God says, I'm going to do it. I will do it. Now, I know it's not going to be on your timetable. I know you want it done yesterday. But listen, when you God with no beginning and no end, what's 5,000 years? It's nothing. It is nothing. And as we are in lonely exile here, we're not there yet, but we want to be there, and we're in this place. It's in Jesus that we can find that rest. We don't have to prove ourselves because we're loved by God because of Jesus. We have rest from the troubles and the evils of this world because we know that ultimately God's going to set everything straight. Every injustice, every unfair thing, every evil that has been done to you and by you, it's, it's all set straight in Jesus. It'll happen. And so what does Christmas do? Christmas gives us the courage to live while we are in exile here. Maybe you come in today and you are just in that lonely place. Christmas can be that time that it brings up those things because we are, our, our memory works by connections. We don't remember, we don't remember the average days we remember the not-so-average days because that's fresh and that's where the connections are. And the holidays are those not-average days. Do you remember what you are doing on March 3rd? I don't even know what day it was. Do you know what you were doing on July 4th? Probably. That's what Christmas does to us. It brings back those things. And what Christmas does is it reminds us in the reality of life that Jesus has come into our world as we are in mourning and lonely exile here, we have a Savior who loves us, a Savior who has come to put an end. We have this sign in, from John in Revelation 12, and signs were meant to evoke wonder and awe. That there is a woman, there is a, the people of Israel gave birth to the Messiah, and he's here. In the midst of the conflict, in the midst of the struggle, we have the one who will crush the head of the dragon. His name is Jesus. Do you please stand? We're going to pray. Have just a time to reflect, a time to just remember the, the things of Jesus and his incredible love for us. That we don't have to earn it or work it up. Or somehow make God like us more. Listen, in Jesus, if you are in Jesus, you are loved. 
If you are in Jesus, you are forgiven as you stand here right today. If you are in Jesus, you have the hope of a future, hope of resurrection, the hope of an eternal place with him right as we stand here today. That's the message of Christmas. Let's pray. Father.